This is Peace Talks Radio, the broadcast and podcast series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with correspondent Judy Goldberg, with a two-part program. Later on, if you have, at best, mixed feelings about your relationship with television and social media, you might enjoy my conversation with media scholar and author Rob Williams, as we'll explore ways to understand better how both those media avenues threaten our personal peace of mind and how we can use both more consciously. But first, our special correspondent Judy Goldberg visits with Arjun Singh Sethi, who tells us about a book he wrote which was born out of his travels across the country to represent those directly impacted by hate crimes. Through the conversation, we learn how bearing witness to this adversity that is sparked by prejudice can activate all of us to become more involved in our local communities by standing up to hate and injustice. Here's Judy Goldberg. When asked to meet with Arjun Singh Sethi, I was handed his book, American Hate, Survivors Speak Out. And my immediate response was, oof, how off-putting that word hate is. Then I thought, now wait a minute. If we can't face the harsh truth of hate, how can we make our way to peace? Invited by United World College, USA, as a keynote speaker for a conference on diversity, equity, and inclusion, Arjun Sethi implores us to reckon with our country's history of violence and to take on the injustices permeating our communities. My name is Arjun Singh Sethi. I was born in Virginia. My parents are Sikh Americans. I'm a Sikh American. And I spent most of my life in Virginia and the D.C. area. I knew from the time I was young I was interested in civil rights and human rights. Um, six for really time immemorial have been stewards of justice, uh, stewards of civil and human rights. When I was young, I was also bullied a fair amount, and so that really encouraged me to speak up for others and uh, develop this kind of interest in really advocating for people who were marginalized, excluded in various ways. And so I'm very proud to both practice law, teach law, and also write on issues that I care deeply about, too. When you think about and when you self-identify as a community activist, tell me what that means. So for so long, the folks who have drafted policies, the folks who have passed legislation have been divorced from the communities impacted by those policies, by that legislation. And so, so much of my recent work has been supporting communities, supporting those who are directly impacted, and making sure their voice is included, featured, and really informs the policies that govern their lives. In 2018, I published a book called American Hate, Survivors Speak Out. And so I spent most of the calendar year 2017 traveling the country, meeting with people who were targeted by hate violence in the run-up to the presidential election. And the reason I wrote that book was because I was hearing from affected communities that hate was spiking in their lives, but also that they didn't have an opportunity to tell their stories that the media seemed more interested in humanizing white supremacists, more interested in telling the stories of why people hate as opposed to understanding the impact of hate on communities. 
And so I decided to write this book because I wanted to give survivors of hate violence an opportunity to tell their stories. And so I would meet with survivors across the country. I went to Whitefish, Montana, Victoria, Texas, Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, Washington, D.C., because hate in America isn't a rural problem or an urban problem, blue state, red state problem. It's an American problem. And so I met survivors and worked with them to create a testimonial in their own words. That's me centering communities and survivors who are impacted by the policies right now. One is the story of Taylor Dumpson. Taylor Dumpson was the first black woman to ever be elected student body president at American University. The day that Taylor takes office, April 1st, 2017, nooses are found hanging across the campus of American University. Taylor has now become a national advocate on issues of mental health, on issues of PTSD. She talked in her testimonial about how after she was not just targeted uh, by the nooses on campus, but by vicious cyber trolling online, she suffered and was diagnosed with PTSD. And so she's become a national advocate on these issues. She also was able to secure legal representation and sued the Daily Stormer, uh, one of the outlets that targeted her, uh, and was able to secure a large monetary judgment um, against them. Another story I'd like to share is the story of Kala Jabara. And so the Jabaras are a Christian Lebanese family that fled Lebanon during the Civil War in the 80s and made a home for themselves in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And all was well until a white supremacist moved next door who really terrorized the family, called them things like dirty Arabs, told them to go back to Saudi Arabia, called them things like dirty Muslims. They themselves are not Muslim and just really trolled and and targeted and harassed them. And then in 2015, the white supremacist next door actually ran over Haifa Jabara. This is the mother of the family. She was hospitalized. The neighbor was arrested and initially not allowed to post bond because of his history of targeting the family and because he had committed a violent crime against his next-door neighbor. Fast forward, and a few months later, a new prosecutor is appointed to the case. Defense counsel makes a renewed motion for bond, and it's granted. The judge grants it. No conditions. The prosecutor doesn't object because he doesn't know the case history. And so the white supremacist is allowed to return home next door to the family he had terrorized. Fast forward another few months, the white supremacist literally murders Khalid Jabara. This is now Haifa Jabara's son on his front doorstep. Khalid Jabara actually called the police minutes before he was murdered and told the police, the man who terrorized the family, the man who ran over my mother, is shooting a gun next door. Please arrest him. Please go check out what was happening. And the police came. And they knocked on the neighbor's door. He didn't answer. And the police came back to college doorstep and said, sorry, there's nothing we can do. He didn't answer the door. And minutes later, the neighbor emerged from his house and murdered Khalid. And if you talk to the Jabaras, they will tell you, had the neighbor been brown, had the neighbor been black, had the neighbor not been white, anything other than white, they would have kicked that door down and they would have protected that family. And, you know, when I think about, you know, Khalid's legacy, there are two things that come to mind. One, there is a new library in Tulsa called the Takun Olam Khalid Jabara Memorial Library. 
tikkun olam in Hebrew means repair the world. And so this is a place where young people come together to learn about equity, to learn about diversity, to learn about inclusion, to learn about racial history. We actually don't have reliable federal data on the number of hate crimes committed annually. There's actually a bill that was introduced in Congress called the College Ibarra Heather Heyer No Hate Act. Heather Heyer was the young woman in Charlottesville who was murdered um, at the Unite the Right rally. Heather Heyer's murder wasn't reflected in the federal FBI hate crimes data. Imagine that. Two of the most uh, sort of horrific hate crimes to occur in the last many years weren't even reflected in the data. And so there, those are two examples. The Memorial Library um, that's dedicated in college name and this federal legislation that now bears his name as well. So I'm thinking Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision was a vision you know, for human decency and to nonviolently end discrimination and hate crimes. So when we think about identifying where the issues are and where the crimes are and have really top-notch data of where it's going on and how it's going on and how we might form coalitions to prevent this or to deal with it should it happen, how, how is that then moving us towards this vision of greater human decency. You know, again, when I worked on the book, I realized that many survivors were experiencing interpersonal violence, namely being attacked on account of who you are and what you believe as a form of hate violence. But they were also experiencing certain state policies as a form of hate violence. And so, for example, I met a trans-disabled activist um, named Dominic Evans. And Dominic Evans talked about how the deprivation of health care was for him a state-sponsored form of hate. I met Jeanette Vizguera, one of the first undocumented immigrants to take sanctuary at a house of worship. And she talked about how being separated from her family and the threat of deportation was a state-sponsored form of hate. And so I make that point because when a lot of people think about Dr. King, um, they whitewash his legacy, and they just think of him as an integrationist preacher. When in fact, um, you know, one of my my favorite um, Dr. King speeches is Beyond Vietnam, where he warns in his words of the giant triplet, militarism, poverty, and you know, racism, and and, and really talks about the confluence of these forces. And so, you know, when I think about where we are today. Yeah, I think we need to be thinking about liberation and freedom and struggle as a national movement, as a local movement, and as a global movement. And so I think there's a lot that we can do. I think that we need to be talking about ending U.S. forever wars in Afghanistan, in Iraq, ending extrajudicial drone strikes. Um, I've served as a legal observer at Guantanamo Bay at the military proceedings. We need to absolutely close that base, and anybody who is there needs to be charged with a crime and be given due process like anyone else. Um, And absolutely, in this country, we need to have a deeper conversation about mass incarceration. We need to have a deeper conversation about what's going on at the border and why children are in cages. And then, yeah, have a conversation about you know, hate violence and the fact that it's continuing to spike. And I will tell you, we need to have that conversation specifically on hate violence now because hate violence almost always spikes during election cycles because people um, and politicians love to scapegoat vulnerable communities and love to point the finger at us and 
often so do, um, you know, everyday people. And so, and, and, and so we need to have those conversations all the time, but especially now. So you've given us some examples of once a hate crime has occurred and the survivors are willing to speak out and willing to engage back into the community for the betterment of others, how, how do the rest of us engage in this? How, how, do, how do we support? How do we take these atrocities into positive steps? When I took to the road in 2017, I expected and anticipated to find plenty of pain, grief, and suffering, and I did. But every survivor with whom I met was resilient and optimistic and was doing their part to make the world a better place, to make sure that people weren't in the future targeted the way that they were. And so I think every testimonial includes examples. And, and anyone can do this, right? I mean, you know, people can talk about racism and hate as public health issues because they are. Black folks are dying prematurely in this country because of systemic racism and injustice. I think also one of the things I've been encouraging folks to think about is to just organize preventively, to create local committees, local task force that are in place in the event that hate strikes. Because people don't realize if there is a hate crime, who is going to support that survivor? A lot of times, survivors don't have health care. They don't have access to mental health resources. Uh, sometimes they need legal representation. Sometimes media just shows up at their door and bombards them. So just making sure that they have the resources and work they need. Making sure that community organizations on the front line, organizations that you often don't hear about because they're not on the news, because their voices aren't often featured and included, have the support they need because they are the ones who are always supporting survivors long after the media loses interest, long after politicians lose interest. So speaking of how people show up, you talked about, I thought it was a pretty great phrase, um, protest is the new brunch. So that people go, they are there for an hour, they go have a latte, and they continue on with their lives. Respond to that. Yeah, I did say that. I don't know that I necessarily came up with it. But um, yeah, and so, again, I think it's great that people are mobilizing. I think it's great that people are voicing their discontent. I do worry sometimes, though, that it's becoming almost routine or ceremonial um, or a kind of pageantry. Um, and I think what we need is a more kind of sustained engagement. Um, and so when I mentioned, I made that comment, I also mentioned the Montgomery bus boycott. And the Montgomery bus boycott is a critical moment in 20th century American history. It's a critical moment in American history, period. You know, it was one of the arguably the time where the civil rights struggle became popularized in sort of the American psyche, right? People could see the images on the television. They could see it in the newspaper every day and people were following along with it. And so that boycott went on for, I believe, 380 days, right? This was longer than one year. And so there are images, there are videos of black women walking to work six, seven miles a day, right? In the rain, in bad weather and saying, I would rather walk in the rain than suffer the indignation of being treated as a second-class citizen on public transportation. And so when I just think of the work that was done and, and what we're capable of, I think we need to push ourselves more. And I think there's more that we can do and more that we need to be doing 
given some of what's happening in this country. And so while I do take comfort and solace in the fact that people are organizing, people are coming together, I do think it's got to be more sustained. And I think it's also got to be coordinated and tied to a particular agenda, you know, an agenda of equity, an agenda of liberation. Can you talk about the time that you were a witness to a potential hate crime? Sure. So I want to say maybe a couple of years ago, I was in uh, Penn Station in New York. And so Penn Station is already one of the most militarized places I know. For those of you who have not been there, um, it's the transportation train hub in New York. And there are so many police officers who are in military fatigues throughout that station, which is why this story is so hard to believe. But in any event, I was lined up in the train station about to go down an escalator to my train when I heard commotion at the back of the line. Couldn't quite make up what was happening, stepped back a little bit, and then saw that somebody was literally antagonizing, intimidating, and threatening a black woman who was standing in line to board the train and go down the escalator. And so I looked around, and the people around her seemed terrified. They seemed concerned, but they didn't know what to do. And so I myself didn't know exactly what to do, but it was kind of like an instinct that kicked in because I've taken these trainings and I've, yeah, studied these issues. And so what I did was I went to the back of the line, came up sort of behind her, put my arms out and just said, coming through, coming through. And then as I did that, everyone parted because a lot of them knew and heard what had happened. And within a few seconds, she was at the front of the line. And so I was able to help extract this woman um, from this very difficult uh, situation that could have developed a hate crime had already taken place because this person had, you know, verbally threatened her. And so that, that, that's under most law, that's considered assault. Assault doesn't require physical touching. Um, but it could have resulted in actual violence. Um, and so I was able to make a difference and extricate her. And so there are all kinds of interventions that we can make. Um, and so I think everyone should, should participate and, 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 and take an upstander training to figure out what they can do and what they should do um, in situations like that or, or comparable ones. We'll return to Judy Goldberg's conversation with Arjun Singh Sethi, author of the book American Hate, Survivors Speak Out, when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break.
It's Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls. Coming up a little bit later on, my conversation with media scholar Rob Williams about how we can all filter our social media usage and our viewing of television news to improve our peace of mind and our ability to make peace with others. But first, back to correspondent Judy Goldberg, who had the opportunity to speak with Arjun Singh Sethi, author of the book American Hate, Survivors Speak Out. How do you keep yourself strong? How do you reinvigorate yourself when the fight is challenging and hard? You know, there's something I'll share here um, that has been a bit new for me, but it has been awesome. Increasingly, it's history, and it's knowing what people have done before us and the sacrifices they've made. I've always known it. Right. I've always known, right, that people have been doing this and I've and I've studied civil rights and I've worked with human rights lawyers and and I know that history, but I think I'm much more intentionally now engaging with that history, engaging with that past. And I find it empowering and I find that it it's this sort of inanimate force that connects us all. And so increasingly I'm finding solidarity and comfort in people who've marched and people who've protested and people who've made sacrifices. So here you are, someone who is concerned about what you're talking about, concerned about racism, hate crimes, discrimination, the injustices that we are seeing mounting in our world today. What do you do if you're interested in being more involved? First, look at your own backyard. And I say that because when we're talking about things like racism and hate and misogyny and gender violence and fascism, sometimes they seem like intractable problems and they seem far away. But the fact of the matter is that sometimes there are people in our own family, in our own community, who have hateful and biased views. And so when you see those views being manifested and articulated, take them on. Two, connect with other people who feel similarly to you. There's always strength in numbers. Three, find a community organization. And so I will tell you there are community organizations across this country who are looking for volunteers. They are looking for financial support. They're looking in some cases for community connections. And then finally, most people are members of different institutions. And so let's say you are a member of a church, a synagogue, a mosque. You are a member of a PTA. You are a member of a reading group. You're a member of your local library. Interventions. Make sure your library has the newest books on these issues. Make sure they're on display. Make sure that your PTA is ensuring that students aren't being bullied in school, and if they are, that they're getting the resources they need. Make sure that your workplace has an up-to-date equity and inclusion policy. And you know what? Have them bring speakers to talk about these issues. Do your part. Everyone has a role in making the world a better place and making the world a safe place for human beings, for animals, for the environment. And so figure out a way to get involved. And, and finally, thank everyone who is doing that work. There is a universe of us. and There is a large global community of us who are trying to make the world a better place. Finding our place in addressing hate crimes in our communities is how we can directly impact lives. I'm Judy Goldberg in Santa Fe, New Mexico, in association with United World College USA and in partnership 
with Peace Talks Radio. You can hear Judy Goldberg's complete interview with Arjun Singh Sethi at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Look for the May 2020 episode. And we have Judy Goldberg, our correspondent on this episode with us from Santa Fe. Hi, Judy. Hey, Paul. How's it going? It's going all right. Thanks for spending a little more time with us. Tell us a little more about the connection Arjun's work has with what's going on there at the United World College USA. Sure. Well, just to back up a little bit for listeners who don't know about United World College, it was a movement that was started back in uh, 1962 uh, at the height of the Cold War. And it was a belief that if young people who are still open and um, not all hardened and shaped by the world uh, came together that and came together from different nations, that they would be great champions of peace. And so beginning in Wales, uh, there are now 18 or 19 United World Colleges around the globe, all unified by a single mission, which is, quote, to make education a force to unite people, nations, and cultures for peace and a sustainable future. You can't... You can't uh, I mean, what, what more speaks to Peace Talks Radio, I ask you? Yeah, that's the uh, mission right there. Now, I've been to the United World College before. It, the campus is on some beautiful land not far from Santa Fe. Is that right? That's true. It's uh, out in Montezuma, New Mexico. And they uh, renovated what had been an old resort where there's a hot spring and a beautiful castle. Uh, so that's what has now been converted into... Um, the main building on campus, but there are uh, dorms and classrooms and, you know, physical education facilities, et cetera, et cetera. It's a pretty extraordinary um, bubble of a place. So what's the curriculum like for the students that spend some time there? Basically, the students are drawn to applying to United World College because they already have some notion that they are interested in this concept of world peace and how to create a sustainable world. So whatever has brought them there, and whether it was teachers that they'd had or relatives or however it is, they get connected into the pipeline in their respective countries that uh, send students. And most of the students from uh, out of the country come with full scholarship. I know, I think around 40%. So this is really looking for thinkers, for um people who are open, young people who want to explore how they can be a powerful force. And so the curriculum is actually an international baccalaureate, uh, which I can't remember how many there are um, around the world, but this, the IB is, is a particular kind of high school certification and um, certificate. And um, so, so the students at United World College USA have a an additional program that really helps structure this engagement with social justice. And so it's called the Bardos Institute, uh, Constructive Engagement of Conflict. And this is where the intersection with Arjun Singh Sethi came to be because this Bardos Institute every year puts on an annual conference. They, um, throughout the year, bring in speakers who really address some of the uh, difficult issues of of our modern society. So the intersection with Arjun Singh Sethi is that he was asked 
uh, to come, and I think innumerable times, as a speaker to the campus, not only to talk about his book, but to talk about um, the issues that, that he is so passionate about that we've just heard about um, in terms of um, civil rights, human rights. So, so this Bardos Institute is part of the curriculum for the students at United World College USA, where they uh, really take on not only global issues, but even more specifically regional and um, local issues. So they may have programs that bring them into restorative justice or immigration issues. Um, they take part in a lot of community service programs in local schools, at community centers, uh, nonprofits, soup kitchens. I know in Albuquerque, there's a youth detention center that where they work. They go to the border. So throughout the region, they're always looking for ways to apply their learning and to engage in issues that, that frankly, aren't always resolvable, but it's really about going towards the conflict and looking where might there be agreements, where might there be transformative opportunities, and that's the kind of work that they do. Yeah, I like this name for it, the Institute for the Constructive Engagement of Conflict. It's not about conflict avoidance. It's about going headfirst into it and figuring a way toward a resolution. Absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, I think it used to be called uh, conflict resolution, but I think the, the field has kind of changed into let's stay engaged. We, we may not find that one place where we uh, are occupying together, but we will find agreements. We will find ways to continue to um, w work at it. And, and I just wanted to convey this one uh, quote that I saw on United World College's website um, that I just love. It's, so this is what some students said was, quote, listening to people you'd rather not listen to is your duty as a United World College student. Right. So it really emphasizes the personal responsibility that we all have. Judy, I love that. And I'm sure we're going to hear more about your engagement there at the United World College USA. Thanks for bringing this segment to us today. You bet, Paul. Thanks for the opportunity. And, and thanks for really get, giving airtime to not only Arjun's work, but the work of United World College around the globe. And you can hear more about Arjun Singh Sethi's book, American Hate, Survivors Speak Out, and the educational work of the United World College USA by going to our website where we've posted their link. So head to peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls, and you're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We are online at peacetalksradio.com. On now to the second part of today's program. I had an invigorating hour-long conversation with media literacy scholar and teacher Rob Williams, whom I've known for over 20 years, mostly aimed at exploring ways to filter our experience with mass media to minimize the disruption to our inner peace and to our ability to make peace with others in our world. Among other things, you'll hear Rob Williams give an overview of how to differentiate between what's been called fake news and what is fact-based, well-sourced reporting. He's written a book about it, which you'll hear about. You can find our whole interview at peacetalksradio.com, again, on our May 2020 episode page. But here's about half of it, starting with Rob Williams parsing out what we risk losing of ourselves and perhaps of our peace of mind if we're not cautious and aware of how we use social media. Anytime a for-profit corporate commercial communications entity approaches you, 
and says, we're going to give you some free stuff, right? We're going to give you free access to Facebook or blog platform or free access to Snapchat or TikTok or whatever it may be. Immediately start waving the red flag because really um, what's happening is that we become the product in that so-called free transaction. And what I mean by that is when we're invited to quote unquote share information with our quote unquote friends online to use two of Mark Zuckerberg's favorite words, share and friend. What we're essentially doing is uh, giving over more and more of our own personal stories in the form of digital data to those for-profit corporations who then turn around and do a couple things with it. They sort it, they store it, they aggregate it. They use it to pitch us products and services we may or may not want. They use it to figure out um, how we're networked in with other like or unlike-minded individuals and organizations. Um, and all of that is done in the name of free. So rarely do we read what is called the EULA, the End User License Agreement, which we are presented with in long convoluted legalese every time we put a new social media app on our phone and we're asked to accept the EULA. And we do mostly without question because we want to get on with the business, literally the business of Snapchatting or Facebooking or tweeting. So that's the bargain that we make as social media users. We talk about them. It's funny, Paul. We talk about them as if they're ours. Oh, you know, my Facebook page, you know, on my Snapchat. It's like, no, no, no. Those, you're, you're, you're leasing that space, actually. Leasing that space from Facebook or Snapchat in return for a steady stream of digital data that, by the way, is getting more and more sophisticated by the week. So what is the threat to our inner peace or our ability to make peace in the world, do you think? Because and the, the and the reason I ask that is because I think it turns on the same uh, thing that I mentioned earlier about people and how they think about TV advertising. They say it doesn't affect me. I've heard people say, "Well, I love Facebook so much. I love what it gives me, and I've got nothing to hide. I don't care what they do with my preferences." Yeah, you hear that a lot, and you just have to look at the CEOs of these large corporations who a don't let their own children anywhere near these platforms, and b do everything they can to protect their own privacy to know that uh, we should be suspicious or at least aware of what's happening with our data. So I believe that each of us are unique and sovereign individuals. And to cultivate peace of mind, this is Peace Talks Radio, to cultivate peace of mind, we need a healthy sense of ourselves and a healthy sense of our place in the world and how we make meaning of our lives. And I think what happens too often with so-called social media, a couple things. One is social media can be very isolating. We've all are well-versed in individuals with social media platforms on their mobile devices who in social situations are much more interested in being on these social media platforms than being present in social encounters. So let's start there. There's a new term making the rounds. I love it. It's called fubbing. When you and I, Paul, are having a conversation and I, in the middle of our conversation, pick up my phone and ignore you, I've just fubbed you. <laughs> That's P-H-U-B. And that happens all the time in people's private living rooms all the time amongst, you know, intimate friends and family, family members. So, so fubbing is a reality. But the other more insidious thing, back to the data transfer, and I want to reference a brilliant new book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. 
uh, eight years in the making by uh, a woman at uh, Harvard University in the business school. Her name is Shoshana Zuboff. She has a brilliant verb to describe what happens in this situation. The verb is render. And she uses the word render in two ways. First of all, when we're on these social media platforms, we are rendering over the intimate details of our lives in digital binary codes of ones and zeros. We're rendering over the moment-by-moment details of our personal flesh-and-blood lives to these companies. And what these companies do, render in the second sense, is they render, they chop up, as if you were throwing a beef cow into a slaughterhouse, they chop up or render our very human experiences, chop them up into these binary codes of digital data they can then use to sell us back what we say we want or give over these data points to other for-profit third-party providers and companies that will run, run and, and governments, let's be clear, that can take this information and do with it what they will. Also, the goal is the creation of predictive behavioral futures markets. If Facebook, for example, can predict the collective future behavior of a swath of its 2 billion plus users online, that gives Facebook tremendous power over us flesh and blood humans uh, over the long haul. And that's a really sophisticated concept. And I, I wake up every morning thinking about it because it's a, it's a really brilliant, brilliant insight that Zuboff gives us when she talks about predictive behavioral futures markets. So we as a species, as well as we as individuals, have to contend with the pros and cons of this very strange relationship with these companies. The thing that uh, got me thinking the most was this predictive element. When we lose our ability to be unpredictable, then we're losing something very important about our experience of living and the possibilities of our life. If everything is kind of anchored to our existing preferences, and that they know what flips our trigger, and our trigger keeps getting flipped, then we don't have a moment, a quiet moment, as we were talking earlier, to think about, well, do I really want that? Is that really what makes me happy? And it takes a little bit away of our will to make a different choice. Is that extending it out a little too far? Or is that, in fact, exactly what she's saying. I think you said that really brilliantly, Paul. I think that is what she's saying. And to put it in the language of human rights for a moment, if I may, just to piggyback, Zuboff in this book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, she lays out three human rights of the digital age that we should all contend with. Number one, and most obviously, is the right to privacy. As human beings, we should fight for and pursue the right to privacy because it gives us those quiet, contemplative spaces of solitude in which we can cultivate a certain sensibility about ourselves and our possible future selves to be Jungian about it for just a minute, right? The less privacy we have, the less opportunity we have to really kind of meditate on who we are and what we might or who we might become. So we hear a lot about privacy in a narrow sense, I think, but, but philosophically and sort of, uh, you know, at a species-wide level, we really, it's one of the West's great inventions, I think, is the right to privacy, right? We, we need that. The second uh, right she talks about is the right uh, to be forgotten. 
the illustration of this is, well, let me give you an example. If I commit a crime and I do my jail time, I pay my fine, I do my community service, I remand myself back into polite society after doing my time. But this crime follows me around the internet for the rest of my life. So I'm in a job interview 25 years later and up comes some story about, oh yeah, Williams committed this crime 25 years ago. We can't hire him. That is an incredibly sort of burden to bear. All of us as humans, of course, make mistakes all the time. So the right to be forgotten is this idea and the European Union is kind of passing, beginning to pass some legislation around this now. The right to be forgotten is requiring these digital media companies to let go of our past mistakes online, just as we do in the real world. And then finally, the, the third right, and it's a powerful one, is, and this gets to your point of earlier, what she calls the right to a future tense. The right for us as human individuals to determine our own destinies independent of being nudged or steered or predictively programmed by these more and more sophisticated algorithms that know our digital selves more intimately by the day. And to bring us back to your point about peace and, and, and our own inner struggle as humans, we do ourselves no favors if we don't distance ourselves from our devices and from our screens and from these platforms on a regular basis, by which I mean daily. We, we need to create sanctuaries. We need to create refuges for ourselves to give ourselves space from this very powerful technology. From his front porch in Vermont, you're listening to a media scholar and teacher Rob Williams, and I'll continue our conversation with him after we take a short break on Peace Talks Radio. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We are online with all of our episodes going back to 2002. You can find us at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Let's get back now to my conversation with media scholar Rob Williams. He's talking to us from the porch of his home in Vermont. I think Facebook is perfectly happy to promote the idea 
of us just spending a lot of time in groups of like-minded people doing our favorite things. And then we ask, well, why are we so polarized politically? Uh, it's because we've got these platforms that are just not really inviting us to uh, learn what the other side is feeling or doing. Uh, and I think that, you know, the political era of uh, uh, of the 2016 election and, and, and where we've been ever since uh, and, and the way that... Uh, these platforms have been the target for polarizing advertising. And this gets into your fake news area even more, which we spent precious little time talking about, is the underpinning of what's going on with these things that we need to be conscious of. We, we have to be at least aware of it. It's brilliantly said, Paul. And, and you're putting your, your finger on something that's so important and central to understanding our digital age. It is the programmed polarization of citizens in this country into like-minded camps. Um, you and I are both big fans of true community media, right? And in a community, you are pushed to wrestle with other individuals and groups of people who have different ways of doing things and different perspectives on things and different ideas about how the world looks and where it should go. And that's beautiful. Like a, like a classic New England town meeting, in other words. It's exactly, I was just going to say, I, I, I attend every year and I'm a big fan because um, that's when you really see the breadth and depth of your neighbors and the people who live in your town or in your city. And what's happening online, Paul, and you nailed it, is we're being programmed into tribes. And you also see it in the legacy media, right? These legacy TV news channels have figured out that polarization is a way better business model in the short term than community or genuine sort of debate and discourse. And it is killing this very fragile republic. It's really sad. Uh, it's really about the bottom line for them. The packaging is about getting your eyes and your attention for the advertisers. So they are creating this like-minded group, and they want everybody who's in that like-minded group to be watching them to be able to sell the advertising. But it's put into you know a package that, as you suggest, bumps up, if not as mainstream, classifiable as propaganda. So how do we tell the difference and how can we consume it from a place of awareness? So the term fake news is a new term for really what is an old phenomenon, and that is the phenomenon of propaganda. Mm -hmm. And to be clear, what we mean by propaganda is simply one-sided information published to persuade. So let's talk about real news as opposed to fake news or propaganda. Real news has six elements. Number one, real news is storied information. Right? We are sapiens for millennia. We have used stories to communicate important information. Right, So real news is storied information that is, number one, recent. Number two, relevant, which is to say it's news we can use. Number three, it's reliable, which is to say it's transparently sourced. None of this like, well, sources said or authorities said or some unnamed person said. It's like, let's be clear about where the information's coming from, right? So recent, relevant, reliable. Number four, uh, it's got a sense of historical context, right? 
Number five, it is what I like to say hegemonically hip, which is simply to say it foregrounds power relations. And number six, it is harmonious or has multiple points of view. So recent, relevant, reliable, historical, uh, hegemonic, and uh, harmonious. If a news story, a purported news story, doesn't meet those six simple criteria, then it is probably not a news story. And what I say to people is rather than take your news faithfully on a channel by channel or a network by network or a personality by personality basis. Oh, you know, Tucker Carlson always serves it up straight or Rachel Maddow always serves it up straight. Treat each new story on its own terms. And if you do this and it requires a little bit more discernment, of course, a little bit more intellectual effort, of course, but this is the situation we find ourselves in, right? If you can think critically about news on a story-by-story basis, then we will be in much better shape than we are currently. And this is where critical media literacy really comes into play. And there are really good journalists out there who are doing really good work. But a lot of what purports to be news, I think, is unfortunately more propagandistic. It's more one-sided. And we've talked about already why that is so from a corporate and sort of for-profit business perspective. I didn't mention the the propaganda model of news yet, but let me mention that briefly. Um, The propaganda model of news um, uh, comes from Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman's 1988 book called Manufacturing Consent the political economy of the mass media, manufacturing consent. And what we did was bring the propaganda model of news up to speed for the digital age. Chomsky and Herman wrote that book kind of as the internet was just kind of coming online in the late 80s. But um, they, they never really had a chance to revise it. Edward Herman has passed two years ago. Noam Chomsky, I think, is closing in on 90, if he's not 90 already. So we spent about a year updating the propaganda model of news for the digital age. And that's where those six elements of a real news story uh, came from. And we'll have links to that on our website too. Uh, it's it, what we're calling on all, all of us to do is, 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 as you said earlier, it's really hard. Basically it, 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 it requires so much attention to what's coming at us uh, because in the examples that you gave, uh, the first thing that comes to mind when you're absorbing stuff like that is that, for example, uh, I don't like Hillary Clinton, so I want to believe that. I don't like Donald Trump. I want to believe that. So it threatens to undercut all of the uh, ability for you to do that six-point checklist about where's the information coming from and why it's important to know what the source is as opposed to a New York Times reporter citing unnamed sources high up in the Trump administration <laughs> That's no. right. You're talking about confirmation bias. We, we tend to seek out news sources that confirm what we think to be true about the world. And the algorithms and the filter bubbles built into the Internet reinforce our confirmation biases. And we are as sapiens as well. We are inherently tribal. It's encoded deep in our in our genetic makeup, deep in our DNA. So all of this works. All of this conspires against stepping back and applying some critical thinking to to, to news. You're right. It, it's a big lift, but, uh, but I think we got to do it. 
Yeah. Well, you suggested earlier, as we kind of wrap up here, uh, giving yourself some distance from social media. You didn't say sign off of social media, I noticed. Uh, I had a friend last night, you know, on Facebook saying, uh, I'm, I'm closing down on Facebook. Obviously, she's concerned about these things. And I immediately texted her on the phone to make sure I had her phone number correct and say, I want to make sure that I, we, we can stay in touch. You know, what could we do? And I've heard some people say, you know, we could create uh, an email list or something of people that we like to talk with, brainstorm with me about some things to, for people who are rightfully concerned enough to say, I'm cutting myself off. I want my life back. I don't want to be so predictable, but I want to take some of the things that are good about social media and preserve that. Sure. We humans have a natural human tendency to want to communicate. And there's all there's a host of different ways to do that. We don't need to have social media, corporate commercial social media platforms be intermediate intermediaries necessarily. And I am a social media user. I'm pretty active on a couple of channels. I've quit Twitter. Um, I'm thinking about quitting Facebook. I, t I, I like Instagram because I like pictures. Um, I appreciate how pictures work on our brains as we talked about. But here's my one, here's my biggest suggestion, Paul. Every one of us can buy fully a third of our daily lives back simply by buying what's called an alarm clock and using an alarm clock to wake us up in the morning rather than our mobile phones. And at night, every night, charge your mobile phone as far away from your bed and your head as possible. Neurophysiologically, that's really good for the brain to get those EMF waves, the blue light, all that stuff. Get it out of the bedroom, right? Let your brain have a hard kind of reset every night. Our, our brains need that to kind of repattern and rebuild and rest, right? Um, but we also break the the addictive cycle of constantly checking in on the news and checking our social media feeds by taking that big step. Go buy an alarm clock. Take the alarm clock challenge, give it two weeks, see how you feel. It's hard. It's hard. Don't cuddle with your iPhone at night. <laughs> yeah, and I've often thought about, too, the business of, uh, gosh, this will sound so old-fashioned, but was it 20, 25 years ago? Maybe you got to go back 30 years where you'd leave for the day and you would check your messages at night on your phone and you wouldn't have access to a phone. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking I'm thinking about going, you know, going, going to lunch with a friend. Leave your phone at home for even two hours. Yes, that, that's a second. The second piece of advice. Yes, is get used to journeying detethered, as I like to say. Leave your phone at home. Um, third idea. And, and again, try it. Right. And the, the, the third part of this approach is to condition your loved ones, your friends and family, not to expect you to immediately answer all the time when they reach out. It's like, right. I know a couple of families who, who have conditioned everyone around them to say, look, Friday night at 5 p.m., we're shutting off the router. We'll be back online Monday morning at 7. If you want to reach mm -hmm. us, here's our landline, if it's an emergency, or stop by. But we're not going to be online this weekend. We're taking a social media, we're taking an internet Sabbath, an internet fast. And it takes a few weeks, you know, for people to figure this out. And you got to kind of let them know. Otherwise, they get worried. Oh, my gosh, they're dead in the house. Um, because you haven't responded right away. But I think that is critical. 
establishing those places and times of refuge daily, beginning with a good night's sleep. Um, if we can do that, we can still engage with the internet and social media, but have daily distance from it. And I think that's so critical. Rob Williams, this has just been wonderful. Uh, anything that I didn't ask you about that you kind of said to yourself, gosh, I really want to get uh, into this conversation with Peace Talks Radio today or to summarize. One last thought, and, and you'll appreciate this, Paul. I, I think all of us should think of ourselves as human beings as in the business of storytelling. When we sing a song, we're telling a story. When we write a poem and perform it, we're telling a story. When we dance... Uh, in the backyard under the moon, we're telling a story. So we've been so conditioned to think that we have to kind of let the professionals do our storytelling for us. And I think one of the great things about social media platforms is they do afford all of us the opportunity to be creative and to tell stories and and to listen to the stories of others. And I think that's, you know, that's exciting. So if you can establish some balance there, but, but, but if everyone out there listening to this could think of themselves as storytellers and as listeners of other stories, um, which again is a deeply human, deeply human evolutionary impulse, we would be well served as a species. As I mentioned earlier, I spoke for more than an hour with Rob Williams, and if you're into the topic of media literacy, you can hear my entire conversation with him on the May 2020 episode page at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. And that's where we have audio and details of all of our programs heading back to 2002. We have downloadable audio of the shows, transcripts, photos, additional resources, all there at peacetalksradio.com as is a donate button. If you'd like to find out how you can help support our nonprofit work that is, by the way, separate and apart from the work of all the fine public radio stations that carry our program, you can go there and find out how. We count on help from listeners like you. See us at peacetalksradio.com. We also get support from KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Nola Days Moses is our executive director of the nonprofit organization, Good Radio Shows Incorporated. Allie Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Judy Goldberg, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and thanks for supporting Peace Talks Radio. We do appreciate it.